morning anthem. We'll do it again. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. We have been following over the last six weeks in John's gospel the ways in which Jesus suffered on the way to the cross. And in Friday night, we observed Jesus suffering on the cross, dying our death in our place, atoning for our sin, making an end the penalty of death for sin. And this morning, we come to the resurrection. Now, what's interesting is that up until this point, over the last few chapters, the gospel, the perspective of John's gospel has been Jesus's perspective. What Jesus was encountering in the mockery and the denials and the condemnation and, and the crowd's response to him. But what's interesting is this morning, John shifts his perspective. John shifts his perspective to the perspective of the disciples, to the perspective of Mary, on their way to the empty tomb. And it's interesting that John does this. It it gives us, as we begin, a helpful and unique perspective on Easter morning. I, you know, it's so hard in the midst of, right, the holiday, the family stuff, all the, the, the events and all the meals and the, the Easter bunnies. This morning, my kid's running out and it's Easter baskets and stuff's flying everywhere and there's foil everywhere, right, and chocolate on the couch and <laughs> everything else. And in the midst of all that craziness, it's, it's rare that we get a time to slow down and consider what was it like that moment that they headed to the tomb? It's important for us to consider because, see, here's the thing. We, what this is going to capture for us is this deep longing that we all, as human beings, have. See, Easter captures this longing. This longing is essentially a yearning desire. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen this yearning desire that humanity has for life and to find it, but ultimately it must be found in God. And here we have the disciples on the edge of the moment where they're going, will we find what we've been longing for this whole time, the thing that's been promised us? And yet there's something in them as they approach the tomb, something that speaks to us in the midst of our approaching the risen Christ on Easter morning in every day of our lives. See, here's what I mean. Uh, we, we use this picture as the background for the, if you saw the promotional stuff about Easter and whatnot. It's a painting that captures Peter and John, who are the two disciples here in this scene. As, as they, at the moment that they hear, he's, he's risen. There's, there's no one in the tomb. The body is gone. The stone is rolling away. And, and you see in them two different perspectives as they're heading towards the tomb. And I, I love this picture of almost that, that space before them as they're looking up and kind of the, the dawn is rising and this, this awareness that something might have happened here. And we see in one, like in, in, in John, we see this kind of, his hand ready to go up and like point and go, is it true? And it's astonishment. This hope beginning to just rise on the horizon of his soul. And then we see in Peter almost this pleading and this almost something's rising up in him and this almost holding back as he goes towards the tomb. Here's what I want to ask this morning. 
for the next few minutes, we get to slow down and consider as you approach the risen Christ this morning, what do you expect to find? See, there may be, for some of you, as you hear of this, this thing, because listen, it isn't this abstract, like Easter is just this holiday, and this is something that happened 2,000 years ago. This is the reality of every, days of our, every day of our life. This is the reality of our, our souls, is that we live every day with this invitation to come to the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. And as we hear that invitation, as we go to him, and we think, this is where all the longing I've ever had will be finally satisfied, there are things in us where we hesitate and we wonder, well, what will I encounter? Will I encounter rebuke? Will I really be accepted? Does he really want me? Will I be turned away and rejected? The space in that painting as they look ahead to the, the empty tomb is a picture of every day of our lives. And that sense of longing that we have as human beings to be reunited with our creator who made us in his image. And on Easter morning, we come face to face with the fact of what is it in our souls that will be holding us back from the very thing that our souls long for. See, John begins and sets up this scene with something essentially alluding to there is something you long for that is going to be rediscovered here in this empty tomb. That is something that we lost. The end of chapter 19, it says this, starting in verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. This is where we ended the Good Friday service. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This garden. See, what's alluding to is that there was a time when humanity dwelled with God in another garden. Dwelled with God in a place where there was perfect life, where all of that longing for His presence, for life in Him, for joy and peace and beauty and truth was right there and we were present with it. We had it, but it was lost. And the story of humanity with all of our aspirations, with all of the greatest artwork, with all the greatest poetry, with all the greatest innovations, all of the yearnings have been ultimately for this desperate search to find our way home back to the garden, to God himself. And what John is saying here is that the very thing that we long for, we find in the one who's waiting for us in a new garden. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to see the two things that the resurrection gives our longing hearts. One is the message we've longed for, the message that we have longed for. And second, then we're going to look at the voice that we long for. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this reality, not even this message, not this, just this story, not just this historical account, not just this recording, but Lord, we thank you for this reality. Lord, we know, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
And Lord, this morning, would you help us for just a few minutes to slow down and be reminded of the magnitude of the resurrection, of what we celebrate today, that you invite us to yourself through your Son. And Jesus, would you this morning remove anything that holds us back from running to you and coming to you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John, you may have, if you've read through your, your Bible and you're, you're familiar with the, the resurrection stories, the Easter accounts, you probably, when you're reading that and hearing it read, probably like that, that seems a little bit different than some of the accounts. In fact, if, just as we begin here in, in verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, what's interesting is all of the other gospel accounts, in those two verses, there are a ton of other details that are normally included. They're kind of all the spectacular, the fantastical details. What I'm talking about, is, and this might remind you of some, what's in some of the other accounts, There's where they come and the angels, I would say it's almost like one of those circus bears on a rock, like the angels kind of stand there like, hey, right? And he's in blazing glory, and there's lightning, and there's quaking, and, there's, and, and they're fearful of this angel, and they peer in all these different fantastical ways. And John doesn't include any of that stuff. He doesn't include any of it. And what's interesting is John's gospel, the whole focus has been that we would find life in Jesus. It's almost as if what John is doing is he's making a V-line for Jesus himself. And he's not denying any of those things occurred. What he's doing, though, is he's choosing specifically not to highlight all those things. Instead, what he's doing is he's choosing to highlight the focus and the aim of who they're going for. In other words, when we read this, what it becomes is almost a gut check. Now, think about it even historically. The other Gospels were probably circulating for 20, 25 years before John's Gospel showed up on the scene. And it almost serves as a gut check. On that moment, is it, do we just want the, the fantastical experiences and all the things that come along with it? Or, in other words, do we want Jesus we longing for him. So it's kind of a gut check. What are we really longing for? What are we looking for? What are we yearning for? And then you get this, the next really interesting detail is this kind of back and forth about James, or sorry, I keep saying James, John and Peter racing to the tomb. So Mary goes and tells them, and out of these next 10 verses here, the first 10 verses about at the tomb and the resurrection of Jesus, 10 of them, 10 of them, that's a lot of space. It's taken up recounting almost this, this race. Like Peter was there first, and then James, John was taking over Peter, and he's coming around the bend, and he's catching up, right? Like it's kind of this who's where in the race to get to the tomb. Re- reading, look at verses 3 through 4, then 6 and 8. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Then Simon Peter, verse 6, came following him and went into the tomb. Then go down to verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and he believed, right? It's kind of, he was coming first and then John came around the corner and Peter's coming around, right? And it's like, why are they including all of these details? Well, what's interesting is if you follow it, John 
who, who, who overtakes Peter. They're, they're both running. John will eventually get there. Peter slows down. He falls back right before he gets to the tomb. John rushes in. John sees the burial clothes. He sees that there's not a body there. And John, it says, immediately believes. And it says, up until that point, they hadn't really gotten it, but now they get it. Or at least it says John gets it. What's interesting here is that Peter, you could say, seems to be plagued by something. Peter seems to hesitate. Peter seems to fall back. Peter seems to be plagued by something. You can imagine, because remember, the last time that Peter saw Jesus, he sat around a campfire, and he was asked three times, do you follow him? Do you love him? Do you even know him? And the last time that Peter looked into the eyes of Jesus, probably across that courtyard, he said, I don't know him. I'm not with him. I don't know him. I'm rejecting him. I have nothing to do with that guy over there. And Peter, you can imagine, as he's rushing to the tomb, he's heard, and Mary's like, yes, he's, the body isn't there. And they're like, really? Is this really happening? And they begin racing there. He's like, he might be resurrected. And then as he's running there, he's all of a sudden playing back the tape. I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. You can imagine Peter falls back as he gets closer and closer because he realizes, just like often we do, as we hear the invitation to God, as we come near him, the tape plays in our head again and again. Look what you've done. Look what you've said. Look at your attitude. And that something comes over us and just causes us to pull back. Could it be that truly the resurrected Son of God actually invites us to himself in spite of, yes, our failings, our sin, our attitude, our dependencies, our weaknesses, our brokenness? That's what Peter's facing. And this morning, let me just pause there and, and, and ask, what are the things? As in, I, I know it's Easter, so I know it's kind of, some of you might be like, hey, I came, I came along, I don't usually do the church thing, but I've, I'm kind of intrigued by this whole story and this, this claim. At the heart of the gospel is this message that says there is nothing. Jesus on the cross holds open his arms wide as he's nailed to the cross to say that there is nothing, nothing that I don't already know that you've done. There is nothing that you could have done that I have not conquered, that I have not seen, and yet my arms are open wide in order to invite you to myself and embrace you. That's the scandal of, of Christianity. That's the scandal of the gospel is that that actually could, is possible. And it's not mere sentimentality. It's not just this kind of like, well, sweep it under the rug and just pretend everything's okay. No, Jesus is the Son of God coming to human flesh. He dies a brutal death on a cross to say, I take it seriously. Just like you keep living with whether it's doubt or self-hatred or whatever it is that keeps you from coming to me. He's saying, I see it and I've conquered it. Let me set you free. And that's exactly the message 
It's subtle, but exactly the message that's waiting for them in that tomb. Because what happens is they, there's another interesting detail here. They enter into the tomb, and it spends two verses talking about the burial clothes. So look at this, verses 5 and 7. And stooping to look in, remember, this is when it's like, you know, they're running to the tomb, now let's go over to the grave, look at the, the, the clothes, and then they're running around, who's getting there first? And interspersed are these two verses about the burial clothes, verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw, John, saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. He... Uh, well, I'll read all the six. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He, Peter, saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, you go, great, moral of the story is make your bed, right? Uh, Jesus, when he was resurrected, look, kids, Jesus made his bed. You're like, uh-huh. You're like, so make your bed, right? Uh-huh. Okay, that's the story of Easter. You got the principle, right? Uh, Jesus folded the clothes when he got up from the grave. Is that what the principle is? No, actually, this is very specific. Uh, there's a message here, a profound, mind-blowing message. Earlier in John's gospel, there was another resurrection. That other resurrection was of Lazarus. The same Mary was there. And at that same resurrection, it says this. At the end of it, uh, I'm going to jump to verse, I think, 40, 44, 43, but it says, he came, cried out with a loud voice, Jesus did, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Why do I read that? It's the only other time where you have burial clothes in John's gospel. It's the only other time in the gospels you have this. And it's specifically juxtaposing there that you have a preview of what the resurrection will bring. But Lazarus walks out of the grave, the burial clothes, they wrapped him like a mummy when they would have put him into the grave. And, and when he comes out, he's still bound like a mummy, right? He's walking around and they're like, hey, unbind him because he's probably bumping into stuff. And he's like, I'm alive, right? And so they unbind him. And it's this picture of this kind of, it's not yet complete. And what happens here in Jesus is not only now that the Son of God has entered the grave, walked out of the grave, is it no longer is he bound by those burial clothes and by the symbol of death, but now the Son of God has not only that, he's ordered it and put it in the corner in its place, and he says to you and I, you are no longer bound if you are in me. And what Jesus is saying is if you come to me, if you come to this tomb and you look in and you see that it's not merely empty, but it's empty of the accusations and the charges that can be made against you if you come to me and receive forgiveness and receive grace and receive life in me, this is the life I give you. And he's saying, Peter, don't be bound by the words, the whispers in your head. Don't be bound by the past. Don't be bound by what they say of you. Be freed in me. And this morning, if there's anything in you that's saying, no, you don't understand. I'm just bound by my past. I'm defined by my past. I'm defined by these things, and I'll never break free of them. Jesus says, yes, left to your own, you will. Yes, left to your own and our current cultural moment, you will probably never be able to completely be freed by your record and your past. Welcome to 2023. 
But Jesus says, if you come to me, you can have a forgiveness of freedom that will not only unbind you spiritually and let you free, but one day when you walk into the grave, because you will, it will not hold you either. This is the message of the resurrection of the Son of God. And hear that message if there's anything as you approach the risen Christ today and anything in you that pulls up because you say, while I long, I hear about this promise of life, I hear about this joy, I hear about this peace, I hear about these things, but then there's something in you, if, and probably if you're a healthy individual, it goes, but who am I? And he says, yes, but no, look to me. And I want you. And that's exactly what we see as the reality that Mary goes after, even after she's heard that message. The second point, the voice that we long for, that Easter and the resurrection of Christ gives us. Look at verses 11 and 13. It continues, but Mary stood. By the way, uh, it seems like there's something else that goes on here. I actually, I, I can't help but laugh when I read verse 10. It's like they see, he's resurrected. And then verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. It's like, he's resurrected. This is amazing. He's, he's not here. Where is he? And they're like, oh, wait, oh, it's time for lunch. I'm going to go make a sandwich, right? Like, it's, kind of, it's, like a, it's an interesting, like, but John's saying, okay, now let's move the scene. Now let's follow. So they go on, and they probably begin telling people. But then he goes, but watch Mary. Because in addition to the message, it's not just the message, but there is a reality that we are promised on Easter. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. He's, he's not here, he's risen, but she's weeping. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and as she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene, by the way, this isn't the mother of, of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. She was a friend of Jesus. She, she had actually come to Jesus through a very spectacular experience, actually. It says in Luke that uh, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons were cast out, right? That's a pretty powerful, like, change of life circumstances, right? <laughs> I had seven demons cast out. Mary is a picture of faithfulness. We, Mary, back in, uh, it's verse 25 of chapter 19, Mary was one of the only ones who accepted the social stigma that came with following Jesus to the cross, and she was with him the whole time. Mary was here, it says in verse 1, before, while it was yet dark, she was at the tomb. Mary's faithfully following Jesus. Mary loves Jesus. Mary's seeking Jesus. She loves him, and now she's going, where is he? She'd heard the message. She'd seen that he's not there. She probably understood what was going on with the grave clothes as Peter and John began talking about it and walking away. So why is she weeping? Why is she so torn apart? Why does she come crumble to the ground in the garden and weep when God is, Jesus is right there, we'll see. John seems to have framed these historical details to capture a profound reality of what Jesus 
has done here. Let me put it like this. This scene, the garden, a woman in the garden, and weeping in the garden, it may be helpful to frame it like this. We've seen another scene where a woman crumpled to the ground weeping in the presence of looking at presence of God and weeping in a garden. That original garden in Genesis 3. And the interesting thing is that the keeper of that garden, the Lord God, in Genesis 3, when he approached her, asked, what is it, what is this you have done? Now I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. And a different garden, in, or a different gardener in the new garden is going to approach a woman weeping on the ground. And this is what he says to her. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus, maybe because of the tears in her eyes. But Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. What's interesting is this gardener with this new garden comes with a different question. Instead of asking her, what is it you have done? He now asks her, who do you seek? What's significant? What's significant about that is that it means that God is no longer approaching and demanding an account for sin. What have you done? But instead, now when he approaches her, he says, who do you seek? In other words, it's no longer when we encounter God, it's no longer what have you done, what is the record of your sin, but who is the one that you seek, who is the one that you belong to, who is the one that you entrust yourself to? Because here's the thing, Jesus is the who who took the what we've done and he buried it and left it in that tomb. And he is now inaugurating a completely new reality that we are invited into with him. You know, one of the things is as you come to this morning, you might, that might be very much the thing. That I, I, I know when we like worship, right? When we, we raise our hands, we sing words, and we, but what happens is, we've said this before, it's like you come in and then all of a sudden as you raise your hands, you begin thinking, I, you remember what you've done with these hands this week. As you come into the presence of God, you begin your singing, and then you remember what you said with your mouth. As you're thinking the thoughts of God, and he's filling your imagination, then all of a sudden you remember what you've actually given your imagination to, and your thought life to. And there's something in us that hesitates, that pulls up, that says, could it really be? Look what I've done, and what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I have come to reverse that very reality so that you might come to me. The primary question now is, who do you seek? Do you seek me? Because if you seek me, I will fundamentally change what defines you. 
I will fundamentally change everything about your life. See, since the fall in the first garden, every human being that ever existed has longed to return to God. Like we said before, every, every longing, every artistic expression, every grand epic adventure, in the end, ultimately what we're seeking is to find a home with God, to find life in God, to find that joy and beauty and truth in God. To touch the face of God. Our every attempt... But between us and God has been the curse of sin and death, and we live in a broken world, and we try all these broken ways to kind of escape it, numb ourselves to it. See, here's why this is significant. In Genesis 3, the curse of death, one of the things as men, humanities describe is as the man and the woman. And we are, as men and women, we are stuck under the curse. No matter the stories we tell ourselves, no matter the way we numb ourselves, no matter how successful we can be, we're shackled with it. We're bound with it. And that's exactly why Mary is going to recognize who Jesus is when he says her name. Verse 15, and then I'll explain. It says then, after she comes to him, or verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Isn't it interesting? I mean, maybe when you read that, you're going, wait, it, she didn't recognize him. She didn't understand. He had just been talking to her. He didn't, she didn't recognize, like, the tone of his voice. Maybe it was because she's crying, so she can't recognize him and see him. But he had already been talking to her. And why doesn't she recognize him? But when he says her name, she does. Up until this point in this narrative, at every point, even a few verses earlier, at verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman. Jesus referred to her as woman. But now, for the first time, Jesus says her name. In other words, Mary, you are no longer defined by the curse. You are no longer defined by this reality that has plagued humanity from the beginning of time, where you were one of all of humanity lost in sin. This is why in Lazarus' narrative, it does the same thing. He was the man, the man, the man. Then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out of the grave. And he calls him by name, and he comes to life. Because what Jesus is doing is saying, we, as men and women, were enslaved to the curse. But now, in him, he calls us by name. He knows us by name, and he calls us to newness of life and a completely new defined reality. And here's the thing. That means that when Jesus calls your name, it says in John 10 that the shepherd knows the names of the sheep, and he calls them each by name. That means he knows all of your dependencies. He knows all of your past. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all the, the, the record and the, the, the stat sheet that you bring. And he looks at you and says, I want you. I've come for you. That is the thing that frees us to run to him. That he calls us by name. Do you know that God knows every hair on your head? He knows everything you've ever done. And here's the thing. When I, I, I think actually one of the things that happens when we don't deal with guilt and sin and our guilty conscience, what actually often happens is we 
end up going to self-loathing and self-hatred. It's actually a subtle form of psychologically trying to sentence ourselves to death because deep down we know it's actually what the punishment is. And so often what we do is we get so drowned in our guilt and all these things, and when we hear God's voice call us, we, we think it's some abstract thing, it's some distant thing, but what Jesus says is, I am coming for you. I know you. I know it all, and I'm coming for you. Come to me. You know, one of the, a picture of this is when I, uh, I, I do weddings often, obviously, and I'm a pastor. It's one of the only other times I wear a suit. Uh, and one of the things, and I've, I've shared this before, but I want to bring a unique angle to it today. I, one of the moments that we all love about weddings is, is there's that moment, you know, when the bride comes around the corner. You know, everyone's watching it's, you know, I say, here, arise, right? And everyone stands and they turn and the bride's coming down the aisle and everyone looks at the bride and, and there's that moment where you're, because every bride is radiant, every bride is beautiful, every bride, you're just, there's kind of that moment when the air goes out of the room. But you know what everyone does? And, and it's so much fun because as a pastor, I get to see this every single time. We all do it intuitively. What do you all do? You look at the bride and as soon as she comes around the corner, you look at the groom. And we look at the groom for a very profound reason. Because while every bride is beautiful, every bride is lovely, nothing defines her beauty or captures it like the gaze of her groom. You know, you see him, he begins to tear up. Even like the strongest men, right? Like, they're standing up there, like, I'm, I'm sprung a leak, right? And the bride sees his gaze. I've never heard during a wedding, I've never heard anyone stand around. There's no perfect bride, right? Amen. No perfect group. But I've never heard anyone, while that bride begins to come down the aisle, I've never heard anyone stand up and go, imposter, white dress, who are you? Look what you've done. I've never heard anyone do that. However, here's the thing. Every day, Jesus invites you to himself. He is your groom, and it says that as the church, they are as his bride. And the thing that defines you is that Jesus, when he casts his gaze upon you, he sees you. And what defines you on this side of that empty tomb is the gaze of that groom. And we live each day where it's, it is this echo chamber of accusations and Satan brings it to our mind or we just remember things. And yes, there are things where like I'm trying to work through these things. I want to find forgiveness and seek forgiveness. There's a whole process there, but in the midst of it, it all has to start with coming to your groom. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, he's, it's like he's running from the altar when you see him and you hear these accusations again and again and again. And you wonder, and it's like you're at the back of the aisle and you, you're going as you hear it all and you begin looking around and you're going, how could I ever walk this aisle? 
How could I ever actually go to him? And what the message of the gospel is, is that it's not merely historical facts of some resurrection, so it makes Christianity intellectually tenable. It's not merely something, an account that makes it morally justifiable. This is an account that says God not only has forgiven you of your sins, but so that he would call your name and you would have him and he would have you. And whatever it is in your life that is whispering in your ear, how dare you go to him? Jesus, on Good Friday, he held open his arms wide so that he could then, after the resurrection, embrace you forever. And he calls you by name. you long for life and the voice of eternity calls your name from the other side of an empty tomb do you long for peace for meaning for purpose the mouth that think of it the mouth that spoke everything into existence calls your name do you long to know god your name is on his lips That, John is saying, is what is spectacular here. That, John is saying, above everything else, is the most unbelievable. It's kind of that thing, you know, big if true. <laughs> and John says it's true. And it's not mere sentiment, it's not wishful thinking, but it's a historical fact that he walked out of the grave, conquered death, and now he looks to you and he says, come to me. Jesus calls his own by their names. And before ending here, I want to take a moment before we go back out into all the celebrations and all the busyness and all the, all, all the fun and the sugar highs and everything else, what I want us to be able to pause and I want to ask you and I want to sit. Say, do you hear him call your name? Go to him. Don't hesitate. Don't let anything ever hold you back. He literally moved heaven and earth. So he might have you. He is who you've always longed for. And he is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the resurrection. Lord, for a historical, gritty, anchoring, truthful, beautiful, yet bittersweet reality on the cross and the resurrection that we can have life with you forevermore, that, Lord, not only can we live unbound from death, but we can come to you and have life with you. As it says here that then, Mary, I'm sending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, that, Lord, you make us one with you and so that we can say, Father, you are our Father. Christ, you are our groom. You've made us one again. You've restored what was lost from the very beginning. Lord, would you call us, would we hear our names on your lips? 
in you death is bound and we are set free. Speak eternity into our hearts. Spirit, fill our hearts with the glory and grace of Christ. Call every name in this room. Make us new people. Make us humble and gracious. Make us abounding in the grace that saved us. In Christ's name, amen.